The passage that I've settled on for this year's memorial service after praying about it is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So I'll invite you to find 2 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7 in your Bibles. It will be projected, but you might also find it helpful to follow along in your Bible as well. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. As I was getting ready for this morning, I look back, I have a, a notebook where I keep some records of aspects of the ministry, and I realize that I've officiated 35 funerals since I began as your pastor about 10 years ago. And one thing I have found consistently in the process of ministering to families during that time of grieving and that important step of the funeral itself, the closure that that brings, is that it, it can be very difficult for all the reasons you would understand and expect. It can be very emotional and, and difficult, but it can also be really, really helpful because services like this and like those 35 funerals do for us something that nothing else in our lives really do. They clarify for us that there really is one hope in our lives. There's blessings that we can enjoy, but ultimately there's really one hope that holds true no matter what, even in the face of death. So if you think about it, death itself is a powerful thing, and it removes from us all of our lesser hopes. You know, your good looks will not see you through death. Your bank account, your home, your family. These are all good things, blessings to be grateful for, but they're powerless in the face of our mortality. But there is one hope that holds through everything, all the trials that you will face in your life, all the difficulties, all the emotional struggles of saying goodbye to loved ones, the ongoing, lingering grieving that continues on, it's, it's difficult to even verbalize. And even as we face our own death, there is a hope that holds. And that is Jesus' promise, I will come again and will take you to myself. That's from John fourteen three. if you want to go and read that sometime. That is the precious promise that we cling to as Christians, that he is coming back for his people. Now, if you're honest, well, I don't want to speak for you. If I'm honest, that is a promise that I find difficult to believe. And when I say believe, I mean like really believe in such a way that it affects how I perceive reality and function in my life. Maybe some of you are like me. You know, we, we all believe that to be healthy, we should eat more vegetables and exercise. Like, we believe that, but we don't believe it in a way that actually affects the way we approach the grocery store in our lives most of the time. That's sort of the way this belief in Jesus' return can be. The problem with it is that it seems really remote, doesn't it? I mean, this was thousands of years ago that Jesus promised that he was going to come back. And he hasn't come back yet. And for all we know, it may be thousands more years before he comes back. And so it just seems sort of distant from our everyday lives. And we can just kind of disbelieve by accident this promise that Jesus is going to return. And we can start to put our hope in a lot of lesser things that disappoint us one by one. The people that Peter was writing to in Second Peter were struggling to believe that Jesus was going to return. That's one of the main purposes 
that he wrote this letter for. They had people in the church, actually, he calls them scoffers, but they had people who didn't believe it, and they were telling other people in the church, he's not really coming back. It's a myth. So live it up. No consequences, no rules. Let's see it together in verses 1 through 4. Peter writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. So that sets the tone. He loves these people. So this is a letter written, even if it says some difficult, heavy things, it's written from a tone of love. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So here we get the picture of what they were dealing with and why it was difficult for them to fully believe and trust in Jesus' return. These people were like kids in class when the teacher steps out, says, I'll be right back. Well, the longer it takes for that teacher to come back, the more anarchy rises up in that classroom. Some kids start to think, I don't think he's coming back. I think we do whatever we want. I don't think we need to be doing these assignments that he gave us to do before he left because I don't think he's going to come back and check. And then one by one, they start to pick off the good kids and, and get them, and then it gets rowdier and rowdier and rowdier. That's sort of what was going on in the church there. They didn't think he was really coming back. And so Peter was writing to them to remind them. It's the same reminder for us. Even though it has been a really, really long time, Jesus is coming back. Even though it's been a really long time, he is coming back. If it was hard for them to believe it because he hadn't come back yet and it was still within the generation when Jesus first left, how much harder for us Now, generations after generations have passed by, and he still hasn't returned. Why? Where is he? Well, Peter wants to remind us that he is coming back, and he starts off with an argument in verse 5. Let's try to follow his thinking here. It's a little complex, but I think we're up to the task. Do you think you feel like you're up for the task? Some of you look more up for the task than others, so I'm not going to point out. So he points out these scoffers and what they're saying. And then he begins to explain in verse 5 why you should believe he is coming back. He says, For they, these scoffers, deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged or flooded with water and perished. Now what in the world is he getting at here? It seems like the point he is making is, you guys need to have a little bit broader perspective. Remember that God, by his powerful word, created all of this. And God, by his powerful word, cleansed all of this in the flood. He has intervened in comprehensive ways in creation before. It stands the reason that he will do it again. He hasn't just lost interest in this. In verse 7, he goes on, But by the same word, so the same word he used to create everything, the same word he used to flood everything, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up 
for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, this is a very disquieting verse, and we need to think about it together. But first, just notice what God is doing right now. He is storing up, and he is keeping the world. Those are active words, not passive words. Hebrews 1, 3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. These are words that would make sense of what you would do with something that you really value, something like treasure. You would store it up, pull it together, guard it, keep hold of it. Peter's saying, of course all things are continuing the way they always have since the fathers fell asleep. God is making sure of it. That's not evidence of his absence or absent-mindedness. That's evidence that he is still faithfully involved in this world, and he hasn't forgotten his promise. He's not slack. He's waiting. He continues, verse 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. I remember when I was a kid, I don't know how old, but I was sitting in the back seat. So I was however old back in the 80s, a kid still sat in the back seat. And I remember riding home with mom, and I actually know where we were now that I'm an adult. We were at that intersection, not that any of this matters, we were at the intersection of 601 and 218 heading home. And I can remember asking mom, how much longer until we get home? And she said, about 10 minutes. Now for her, that was a, that was a good thing. She's like, just 10 minutes. To me, that seemed like it was going to be an eternity. Like, 10 minutes? I just got to sit here for 10 minutes? Because to a little kid, 10 minutes seems like a great deal of time. But to my mom, however old she was at that point, that seemed very insignificant. That you could bake a potato in the microwave two times in that amount of time. That's one-third of a sitcom. And that's nothing. So why was it so different? Our, our experience, the time is the same amount. Why was our experience at the time so different? There's actually some sort of like scientific mathematical reasoning for this that I, I really like. I probably told you about it before. But if, if I was 10 years old at that point... One year of my life would have been one whole tenth of my entire experience of life. So it makes sense. One tenth of your life is a pretty good chunk. Now, if I were 100 years old and lived one year, that's only one one hundredth of my life. That's really not that significant in the grand scheme of things. Our perception and understanding and experience of time is limited and, and relative. Now, if there's a difference between little kid Matt and his mom... In their experience of 10 minutes, how much more is there going to be a difference between us, we we humans who are alive but for just a breath, according to how God puts it, and God who is eternal? So for God, one day, a thousand years, it's all the same. So why hasn't Jesus returned yet? It's been a couple thousand years. Well, it was a couple thousand years before he called Abraham, and it was a couple thousand years beyond that. When Jesus came in the incarnation, and so here's another couple thousand years. It's really not a big deal to God. He can wait. For another reason, he's patient. That's what he goes on to say in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So he's not just playing with his keys. 
This is a, a phrase in our family that we use. I didn't approve this by David to use this example, but some time ago, Meredith and I, I think we're dating at this point, and we and her family were going to go, I think, to watch a movie, if I remember right. It was something that had a, a start time, so we needed to get out of the house and go. And if I remember correctly, David was doing the things that are necessary to close down a house and go. He was turning lights off, finding an umbrella, getting things locked up. We were all in the car looking at our watches. And he finally gets out there and gets in the car, and he sort of fumbled with his keys a bit, which happens to anyone. And we were so impatient. We were like, David, we're going to be late. And he said, I know we're going to be late. I know we need to go. I just want to play with my keys sarcastically pointing out that obviously he knows we need to get going. He's doing the necessary things required. And it's still a saying in our family, if we're waiting on David for anything, we're like, what's he doing, playing with his keys? (laughs) Jesus has not returned yet. But he is going to. He's not just playing with his keys. There's a reason for the waiting And it's God's patience, it's God's grace, it's God's mercy that he waits. You know, this gets us back to verse 7 there. This day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, there's two sides of Jesus' return. One side is Christians we cling to, and it is our hope, and it is beautiful. It's Jesus coming back to draw us to himself, but there's another side to it. The judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now we need to stop here and ask ourselves and sober up for a minute and think about this. Who, who are these ungodly? Who are these ungodly that will be judged and destroyed? Now in context of the letter, it's probably most likely that he's first referring to these scoffers. Because the chapter right before this, we already saw in uh, verse 2 or somewhere up earlier that they follow their own sinful desires. So we get a little bit of an idea of the godliness of these people. The whole chapter before it, if you want to go and read it later this afternoon, is just this one big indictment of these scoffers, these ungodly people. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I do want to give you sort of the highlights of some of what Peter points out about these people. He says, they follow their sensuality. In other words, they do what feels good, not what is good. They exploit people, which means they use people for their own personal benefit. They speak false words. They do lawless deeds. They indulge in the lust of defiling passion, which biblically, that terminology most likely is referring to sexual immorality. They despise authority. They're bold and willful and do not tremble at the things of God. This is a quote from the letter. This isn't me saying this. They're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. They blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime in their deceptions. Their eyes are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Their hearts are trained in greed. They forsake the right way and have gone astray. And they love gain from wrongdoing. So it seems evident to me that as he gets to this point of the letter, everybody reading is going to know, well, I know he's at least referring to these scoffers because he's just going on in great detail about how ungodly they are. 
And one of their main messages to the church was, you can live any way you want because Jesus is not coming back. And there isn't going to be a reckoning for sin. So this freedom that is yours in Christ is freedom to just live it up. And Peter's saying that is not true. He is going to come back. And there will be judgment for those living that way. The teacher's coming back and he's going to know who rebelled while he's gone. And you say, as I read that list, those people are terrible. I am really glad that I am nothing like those people. But then sometime later, you'll have some quiet moments. Maybe tonight as you're going to bed and there's no more visual input from the TV or audio input or anything. And it's just you and your thoughts. And you'll start to think a little bit about this. And you'll think, well, wait a minute. How ungodly does someone need to be before they're in that list of those who will be judged and destroyed? Because I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. How do I know I'm not on that list? It says that these people follow their sensuality. Well, I don't think about it in those terms, but I do sometimes do what feels good rather than what is good. It says they exploit people, use them for personal gain. I mean, I'm not a professional at that or anything, but I look back over my life and I have manipulated people for my benefit rather than lovingly serve them. They use false words. I don't think of myself as a liar. I don't have like a compulsive problem where I'm lying all the time, but I have lied. I have used my words to shape someone else's perception, to believe something that I know is not true on purpose. Lawless deeds. Well, again, I haven't thought in those terms, but I know that Jesus summed up all the laws in the Bible in just two. And the first and most important one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't honestly say that I've obeyed that perfectly throughout my life. I've got a lot of things that I love that compete with my love for God. I mean, I think I do love God, but I don't know that I love him above everything else in my life. The second law, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, I'm not a jerk every day, but am I really treating the people in my life with that kind of love, loving them with the same kind of self-protective care that I love myself? Indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Well, who has made it through adolescence without some sort of sin in that area? Despise authority, bold and willful. Don't tremble at the things of God. I can't remember the last time I've really trembled as I thought about the holiness and glory and awesomeness of God. See, as we keep going down this list, if we're honest with ourselves, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. There really isn't a godly person who's ever lived except for Jesus Christ. And that's why Christianity is good news. That's why Jesus is such good news. I want to read to you Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. During this moment of self examination. Listen to this good news. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? For the super godly people, the really morally self-righteous people? Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, 
one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's a dense paragraph, but this is the good news of Christianity. It's good news for ungodly people like me. It's good news for all of us. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly to reconcile us to God, to pay for our sins so that we could be fully forgiven. That's why we don't sing songs together about our amazing goodness. We sing songs together about God's amazing grace. Grace is blessings that you don't deserve. And in Jesus Christ, God is abundant with grace. There was a lot more to this sermon. We were going to go all the way down to verse 13 of 2 Peter 3. And as actually this morning, I made use of the delete button on the computer and decided that this would be the landing spot. Because I think the best outcome from this passage for us this morning as we move toward our memorial part of the service is that we would take hold of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And what that looks like is recognizing the need for it, first off, based on his word, it's been revealed to us that we are ungodly people, and we need not some self-improvement, but we need salvation. And recognizing that, turning from our sin and our ungodly ways, and embracing the forgiveness God offers through Jesus Christ, and in Jesus being fully secured, fully in place, fully in God's care, Promise now that when he returns, it's not going to be judgment and destruction, but Jesus welcoming us into himself because he's already taken on the payment for our sin on the cross. It's unpleasant to think about our ungodliness. It's unpleasant to think about God's judgment. It's unpleasant to think about death. But it's vitally important. Because one of two things is going to happen. Either Jesus is going to come back in our lifetime or we will die. I can guarantee you that. One of those two things is going to happen. We're going to experience that. And we can be ready. By trusting in Jesus as our Savior, by following Jesus as our Lord, we can be ready for that. I'm going to pray. We're going to pray together. And it'll just be a little bit of quiet time to reflect on what we've heard from God's Word. And then we'll move into the memorial service aspect of this morning. We'll light these candles one at a time in memory of those who died last year. As we light those candles, it's, it's an act of remembrance of these people who meant so much to us. And it's an act of gratitude to God for them and how he blessed us through these people. It shows we haven't forgotten. God, we haven't forgotten what you've done for us through them. It's a symbol of how valuable they are and those memories are. But let it also remind us of our own mortality and our own destiny. And let us point us to God through Jesus Christ this morning. Let's pray.
Father, we never want to rush on from receiving your word and forget about it. Would you please use these quiet moments by your Holy Spirit to work these truths down into the soil of our hearts. You know where each one of us stands with you. If there is anyone here who is not ready for the return of Jesus Christ because they are still in their sins, they've not been forgiven and cleaned up, transformed, made new, freed from that old life of sin, to live the new life in relationship with you, would you please do that in their hearts this morning? Prompt them to pray to you now a prayer of repentance of their sins and confession of their sins and faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. there's anyone among us who is a Christian, has been transformed and free from their sins, but has drifted away and has been living in ongoing, unrepentant sin, would you please remind them of what's true of them in Christ, that that's not who they are anymore. Put their feet back on the path. May we all, each and every one, be ready. And now as we consider these people who have passed away last year, in light of the gravity of these things, the seriousness of life and death, We light these candles, Father, and we want to honor you. We are so grateful for these people and their lives. We're so grateful that you put them in our lives. We're so grateful for the way you influenced us through them. Let us use this occasion to rejoice in the good memories and to genuinely express this gratitude, but also to think more seriously about our own lives and thus get the maximum blessing out of this service. In Jesus' name, amen.